Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be breaking down the seventh episode of The Peripheral, an episode called The Doodad. We have just one more episode to go. This is a very eventful episode, by the way. Many questions are answered. Many plot lines are cauterized, for better and worse. I don't find all of it that satisfying, and I do worry a little bit about how this is going to wrap up, or if it will wrap up in the season finale. But I'll leave some of that for the breakdown itself. Before all of that, I did want to provide a little public service announcement for your Black Friday or Thanksgiving weekend shopping for streaming services. We can kick things off with HBO Max now offers a ad-supported level to their service, which you can get for $1.99 a month for three months, and that does increase to $9.99 a month thereafter. Unfortunate that a lot of these streaming services are going to be adding ads. They're all struggling to make any money. We've had quite a run of incredible amount of content, and all these different services are competing with each other and spending fortunes creating this content. And unfortunately, this is going to inevitably lead to some kind of culling, I think, in the future. But for now, they're still trying to undercut each other on price. But one way they're kind of mitigating their pricing is by inserting ads into all of these services. Honestly, even Netflix is going to have a ad-supported tier starting in January, I believe. But if you don't currently have an HBO Max subscription, $1.99 a month, but only for three months before it does bump up to the normal $9.99 a month. Hulu has its standard Black Friday deal. I believe last year, this is the deal I was on, it was just $0.99 a month for the entire year. $12 for the year or under $12 for the year. This year they have had to bump that up, but it's only $2 a month. So $2 a month for a year of Hulu, $24 gets you the entire year. I think this is an incredible deal. And if you do sign up for that Hulu deal, by the way, you can also add Disney Plus for $3 a month. And I would highly recommend this if you don't currently have a subscription or if you're going month to month on your Disney subscription. Disney just had a terrible quarter, mostly because of losses on their hugely popular streaming service. So that price is increasing, I think, in December to $8 or $9 per month. So the idea of having Hulu and Disney for $5 in combination, so $60 for the entire year, it is cheaper than going month to month on Disney by itself. So absolutely take advantage of the Hulu-Disney combo offering. Other deals to take advantage of? Paramount Plus is being offered for just $2 a month for an entire year, $24 for the year. And lastly, one of the services that is struggling the most and is offering itself, once again, another price discount. I am currently on a $1.50 a month subscription to Peacock. And believe it or not, the Black Friday deal is even a deeper discount, 99 cents a month. So for less than $12, you get Peacock for the entire year. There's not tons of great content on Peacock. However, if you're a fan of Yellowstone, and many of you are, you can watch Yellowstone on Peacock. You can watch The Office on Peacock. And they do have a slate of new content coming this year. Some of it does look interesting. And they have had some good shows in 2022 as well already. So there's some back catalog of things to watch. And of course, it is also the premiere window for Universal properties. So for example, the hugely successful The Black Phone horror movie, The Halloween Ends, premiered day and date on Peacock at the same time. The Jurassic Park films, including the latest Jurassic World film director's cut, is available exclusively on there. So some things that are worth watching on Peacock. And hey, for $12 in a year, I am guaranteed you it'll be worth the money if you find one show to stream there over the course of the year. And they've had many premieres in just the past couple of months. And some of them, honestly, I haven't watched any of them all the way through. <laughs> so I wasn't that compelled by them. But 
if I wasn't so inundated with other content to watch, I probably would have finished some of those shows. So maybe I'll have a recommendation episode in the future, but just to let you guys know these coupons are out there, as I mentioned before, Paramount Plus, just $2 a month. You can see all the Yellowstone side stories are only on Paramount Plus. You can binge the Good Fight, an excellent courtroom drama that just wrapped up a month ago. Finally, time to catch up on all of that. You can see all the Paramount movie premieres, including Top Gun Maverick, which is premiering in just a few weeks on that service. And I'm sure that when the next Scream movie comes out in a few months, it will be premiering primarily on Paramount. So many, many things to recommend streaming Paramount. Plus, of course, if you have kids, all the Nickelodeon content. Peacock at just 99 cents a month. You can see the Minions movies there. You can see all the Universal films there in their initial release. If you like horror, all the Blumhouse movies go there first, like the Halloween Ends film that just premiered recently, as well as The Black Phone. Get HBO Max at just $1.99 a month for three months. And of course, the Hulu package deal. At a $2 a month for Hulu, $5 a month for Hulu and Disney. A real bargain if you are currently paying for either one of those services. And I'm sure there's others. Those are just some that come to mind. And all of those are expiring with just the ne- within the next few days, I believe. They all expire at the end of this month or even before then. So do take advantage of those coupons. If you have not, I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to get a rundown of all those deals and some links for subscribing to them. Honestly, I canceled all of my services about a month ago waiting for these Black Friday deals. (laughs) I will be using some of these coupons myself. Before I get into really a pretty negative take on the peripherals latest episode, I do want to very briefly discuss the finale of Andor here as well. I was planning to have a full season recap here with a conversation with a couple of folks who've been on this show before, Ray and Nick, who are both huge Star Wars fans and just caught up on the show very recently after I recommended it to them multiple times. So I still plan to have that conversation with them next week. Stay tuned for that and do catch up on Andor. And if you're on Disney Plus watching Andor, by the way, also something else you could catch up on is the very entertaining, and maybe I'll have a much longer conversation about this, James Gunn's Christmas special of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'll have that conversation, like I mentioned, next week. We'll have the finale of The Peripheral. We'll have that Andor conversation and discuss the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, which is available as of this Friday when I'm publishing this episode. So do check all that out. And I will have a full breakdown of Andor next week. But I did want to briefly discuss a couple of things. One is the fact that it is pretty disappointing to me even hearing the Gilroy brothers discussing how the ratings for Andor have been pretty disappointing compared to the previous Star Wars series. I have really not liked the previous Star Wars series. I should say I did like Mandalorian. I didn't love it, though. I did like Mandalorian. I did like the fact that they were at least trying to step away from the Skywalker saga, although that was part of my frustration in season two was integrating it there with the original characters once again. But I did like what they were trying to do, especially in season one, where this was almost like The Fugitive or the old school Incredible Hulk show, a samurai coming into town and helping somebody resolve a particular issue. And the less attached it was to the original Star Wars mythology in that world, obviously, but not directly to those characters and their histories and their stories, the more I appreciated this show. And as a matter of fact, it's something that I've wanted to see a lot more of. And I do know, by the way, and I have not read any of these, but I know that people tell me, some of my friends who are big Star Wars fans say, if you want that, if you want to understand the inner workings of the Empire and how 
you know, what happened in between, like the actual complexities of the bureaucracies of this, then you really should watch the uh, cartoon shows like Clone Wars, for example. And you should also read some of the better novelizations. I have not done any of that legwork, granted. But I'm just talking about the movies and the TV series. Honestly, what most people interact with, which is the most popular content that the Star Wars franchise has put out, and how disappointed I am with most of that, aside from, you know, honestly, there's only maybe two of those films that I recommend without any qualms at all. And then honestly, these TV shows, other than like the best episodes of The Mandalorian, I haven't been very impressed. And you can listen to our coverage here of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, a show that I did not appreciate, although I love the Obi-Wan Kenobi character, and I feel he did so little. All of this is to say, I had said in that very show, in that very recap series that we did here, what I really wanted to see was in the world of Star Wars, how did the Empire rise to power? How were they able to control these people? Like who were their benefactors? Who were the people who looked the other way? And then once they rise to power, once the rebels form this like spy network within this totalitarian regime, there are so many possible stories to tell in this universe. And why isn't anyone telling us any of those stories at all? And interestingly, I've made this complaint to some of my Star War super fans, and they've said, you should watch Rogue One, which I have watched. And I didn't love Rogue One, by the way, but I did appreciate the fact that there were aspects of it that were exactly what I was describing. Anyway, long story short is we get a whole series exactly of what I was asking for. This and or series gives me exactly that. You get to follow these low-level bureaucrats that are just doing their day-to-day jobs who are facilitating this empire because it's what you do. You want to get a job? These are the jobs that are available. And in a way, it's a universal story about something that is a completely fictional universe that we're in. And it's about how people can look the other way and little by little, uh, it's called out directly in the finale. You've been asleep for so long, you don't even remember what it was like to be free in the first place. And it's this awakening of the rebellion. And we see that story, this forming of the rebellion from the point of view of these people who are oppressed, these people who are part of the machine, these people who are risking their lives, or at least risking their wealth, funding these rebels, when the reality is that by following the party line and going with the flow, they could have rich, luxurious lives, and they're literally risking everything for these ideals. And I think that speaks to how rebellions and politics actually works. Pretty fascinating that we're dealing with these dense and complicated loyalties and interpersonal stakes in the context of a Star Wars show, something I honestly never, ever believed I'd be saying. But all that is to say that maybe because of how good this show is and how mature it is, it hasn't found that fanboy audience. And I really do hope this doesn't mean Disney and Lucasfilm decides, well, we'll never do that again. I really do hope that they take the lesson. And I really do feel that fans will come around to this show. They will come back to it and they will keep touting it to their friends and the show will only build its popularity over time. That remains to be seen, but I really do hope they take the correct lessons from this. Another thing I want to mention briefly before we get into the peripheral and also related to Andor is just this really fascinating thing where we saw that Game of Thrones had a prequel series and the Lord of the Rings had a prequel series and Star Wars had a prequel series all running at the same time. A very strange choice to have these things all come out at the same time. And in some ways, maybe diverting attention from each other. For me, the least successful of these three projects was the Lord of the Rings show. And I don't even want to speak to the quality of whether it was good or bad. I did not appreciate the show, but I am really not into high fantasy. It's not something that appeals to me in general. 
my entry point to the Lord of the Rings is the Peter Jackson movies. I didn't even finish watching all three of the Hobbits movies. I watched the first two, could not even bother after the second one to watch the third. Not a big fan of the Hobbits, but loved those first three Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings films. And I would say that those films were so good, they bypassed my bias towards films in that genre or stories in that genre. So I think if you love high fantasy, then you're not going to get a show that is giving you that high fantasy at any higher level than the massive, I mean, hundred, multiple hundred million dollars they spent producing that show. There'll be another season of it. I don't love the genre. I didn't find the story that interesting, especially when you're talking about characters that live for thousands of years. I just could not connect to anything that was happening on the screen other than some of the visual splendor of it. For me, the least successful of the three. Uh, your mileage will definitely vary. Like I mentioned, if you love high fantasy, no show is going to give you that at that level. You're getting what you got in world building from the Lord of the Rings films on a weekly basis at a, an, on an even bigger scale. But for me, there was no emotional character hook that I can get it could get into. The most interesting character, I don't want to spoil anything here, the most interesting character is a fallen elf. That's all I'll describe him as. A totally fascinating character that is undeveloped completely in this story. But maybe, maybe his story will be developed in the next season of the show. I don't know if I would come back to watch it. It is possible that this is all set up, which is kind of the frustration I felt, by the way, watching it. I felt like there's a lot of setup here, and I don't know who any of these characters are yet. And maybe that's the problem with signing on for a show that's going to be on for three, four, five years. And I can make almost the exact same argument for a show that I enjoyed way more, way more, which was House of the Dragon on HBO. Yes, it did not feel like Game of Thrones. Yes, it was in a lot of ways a soap opera. Or what I would say is I don't really feel like it's a soap opera. It's more like watching The Crown, but instead of seeing these fictionalized versions of actual history... It's a fictionalized version of fictionalized history, but I felt it was the same. And what I really liked about it was that I was able to hook in not only with these characters with their soap opera plots, but I honestly could appreciate the complexity of the trade-off making decisions for the good of your legacy, for the good of your family. The sometimes horrible things you have to do to survive, having power in the first place forces you to be inhuman in the decisions you make. Those themes are in Game of Thrones, along with much more compelling characters. Although I think House of the Dragon still gives you some pretty compelling characters. And honestly, I could imagine if you'd never seen Game of Thrones, you can watch House of the Dragon. I know people who didn't watch Game of Thrones and watched House of the Dragon, and you fell in with these people. Is the richness of character there already? I don't think so. And like I mentioned, maybe part of that, multiple large time jumps in this season literally had to recast characters. And that is intentionally or not, going to create some distancing with the audience. But it was a huge rating success. I found the show to be very entertaining. And then, ironically enough, maybe the least successful of the three from a rating standpoint, the Andor show, which is exceptional. It's just such a brilliant show for all the reasons I stated earlier. It is not just thinking of itself as just another chapter in Star Wars, just setting up storylines for the future. It's a show about the limits of control. It's a show about the decay of morality when you are fighting within a rebellion and the compromises you have to make to your character, to your livelihood, to your family, what that costs you in the end. These are deep topics. 
and executing at an exceptional level. And like I said, this might be the least successful from a ratings perspective of these Star Wars shows and of these prequels series that I just mentioned, but it's the best of them. So do catch up with it. By the way, if you don't want to watch the whole thing all at once, I do want to have like a little bit of a viewer's guide here that the shows are structured basically as individual movies inside the season. So for example, episode one, two, and three in combination are a two-hour story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Episodes four, five, and six, new scenario, new cast of characters in a different circumstance. They're basically pulling off a heist, beginning, middle, end, story ends on the sixth episode. Episode seven is a a little bit of a palate cleanser, kind of shows you where everybody is at this moment in time, and sets up episode eight, nine, and 10 storyline. For me, the most satisfying of these cycles of story within the season itself In the last two episodes, I thought these were not the most successful of all of them. Only two episodes long, but the finale has some of the strongest moments in the entire series. So feel free to chop this up and watch it in bits and pieces because it's not one story told throughout the entire season. It is these mini seasons chopped up into this broader season. So minus that interruption by my neighbor's leaf blower, (laughs) let's get into the breakdown of this week's episode of The Peripheral, an episode called The Doodad. So this episode is called The Doodad. It could refer to so many things in this show, by the way. (laughs) And I find it ironic that the writer of this show or writers are calling attention to the fact that you have to reference things here as doodads. It is almost like a self-critique. Because yes, everyone has to call everything a doodad, whether it's in the current timeline or in the future, because there's so much jargon, so much technology that gets introduced and then ignored for episodes at a time, only to get reintroduced again. <laughs> maybe I should maybe I should be coming in this hot. But uh, it is a frustration. I mean, honestly, a frustration that this show continues to make its plot so convoluted and to what end, honestly. All that being said, and getting myself back on track here, We do get a lot of answers in this episode as well, but we have a lot of strange plotting. I have to call it out. I have not been a fan, as many of you, if you're following this, you probably know that I'm not a huge fan of this show at this point. And there's a lot of strange and convenient plotting here as well. So we see we begin with Burton and Flynn's mom is doing the dishes when suddenly she loses her sight again. She calls out to whoever happens to be there, standing guard over the compound. This happens to be Reese, one of these... Pretty nondescript buddies of Burton's. She says, hey, I've lost my sight again. I need to go see the doctor, but I don't want to panic the kids, so let's not tell them. This is all very strange, that this is the set of decisions that are made. Reese should minimally just send a text message to Burton to let him know what's happening. There's a reason that he's standing guard at the compound. And as a matter of fact, Bob is watching them. Now, the idea that Bob doesn't go onto the compound and wait them out there... I mean, maybe he might think they might have some surveillance or some other way of tracking him there. So I'll allow that. But the fact he decides to track them to this medical facility seems to be absolutely the wrong decision on his part. And everyone makes the wrong decision here. Reese should warn Burton right away that something's going on. We know there's something supernatural. And I don't mean that in a spiritual way. I mean that in the beyond the scope of nature at this point, the fact that she has regained her sight And now that it's gone, the first thing he should be doing is warning them. Just her going to the doctor could potentially lead to many questions that she may not be ready to answer. (laughs) So I hate to harp on, once again, to harp on this 
insignificant seeming moment at the beginning of the episode that just kicks off the plot. But so many things happen here just to set up the next scene without any kind of real character motivation being well-defined at all. Anyway, for whatever reasons, Reese decides to take the mom to the doctor to go see Dee Dee. Bob is hot on their heels. In 2099, our peripheral pilots, Burton, Connor, Flynn, have been having this long, I would assume, conversation with this investigator, filling her in on everything that's happened in the show up until this point. The investigator now wants to have the rest of the conversation outside of earshot of Lev. She probably wants to get a feel as to what everybody's real agendas are here. And Flynn asks for Wilf, Wolf to tag along. This might be to protect him. This might be just because of this affinity she's developed for him. But part of it, like I mentioned, might be that she wanted to protect him from any kind of fallout leaving him behind with Lev might lead to. Detective Lobeer and her assistant, Beatrice, take Connor and Flynn and Burton out to a training compound. They have to clear eight levels at this training course. They have six attackers on the first floor, and then 12, and then 18, etc. And they're racing to see who can make it to the top. They think eight will be sufficient exercise, since few people who are new to these peripheral bodies can achieve that kind of level. And Beatrice takes them off to this exercise while Detective Lobert continues to question Flynn. Meanwhile, back in 2032, Tommy goes to the Sheriff's Department is asking to see if any of the evidence was checked in. He still sounds like a crazy person here to anybody who's working inside the offices. But of course, we know at this point that the sheriff is really working for Corbell and are trying to get Tommy out of the way. When Tommy discovers that there was no evidence checked in, he goes back to look at his police cruiser and he does find Bob's gun as well as the doodad, this sonic gun that he found as well, and pretty quickly discovers how it works. Meanwhile, at the clinic... Bob gives himself a really bad cut on his forearm to somehow fake that he needs medical attention inside of the clinic. Very strange that he wouldn't just walk in, as if no one would expect other people to show up at the clinic anyway. Plus, he has this giant bruise on his head. He can say, hey, I was in an accident. Look at my face. And also fortunate that Burton and Flynn and everybody else who's seen Bob didn't give Reese a description of this guy from when they ran into him on the bridge in the first place. So for whatever reasons that some of the decisions that are being made on this show do not fully understand, he gets in there and is able to be fast enough with his knife where he gets the upper hand with Reese. Reese fights nobly, but ends up dead nonetheless. And Bob unlocks his phone with Reese's face and tells Burton that mom's in the hospital. We need you to get out here right away. In 2099, Ash and Ossian are speaking in their encrypted language. And they're a little concerned with Lev's actions, trying to access the peripheral remotely in the presence of the detective, which apparently would be given away immediately. And they're afraid that they can basically have their connection to the stub immediately canceled by this detective. The detective actually makes this offer, by the way, to Flynn at one point. If you could go back and undo any of this, would you like me to disconnect you this future? And she asks, is that possible? The investigator does not actually give her a straight answer in this regard. So there's still some ambiguity as to... What's happening here as far as could she potentially put Flynn back into a point in time before all of this happened? That would be interesting, an interesting twist in this show, to be honest. Kind of a reset of things. Regardless, Ash mentions to Ossian something that is a bit of a twist that I did not see coming. For the longest time, from the very the first episode, I've been saying that whatever this another doodad, which is this MacGuffin of what was stolen from Newland, has been downloaded into the past. It's been lost 
and they're trying to get their hands on it. For the longest time, I've been saying this is inside, literally, of Flynn's body, and we've discovered over time that it's manifest, manifested itself in this infection that's brewing behind her eye. Turns out that wasn't the intention in the first place. The assumption had been that it was going to be actually Burton going back into that peripheral and that the download was supposed to occur into his haptics. And now this, I don't know how this would work, but since the haptics were not there, this somehow manifested this code into this bacteria. And now Ash is trying to reconstruct the code that is within the DNA of this bacteria. There's a little complication here in the fact that this investigator is mentioning that in their timeline, it has not been well explained. I've raised the question multiple times now over the course of this recap show, how this stub would work in the context of these other multiple futures. And they're saying that, for example, Connor has not lost his limbs in this version of the timeline. So their stub is in a different timeline than this version of these people in their own histories. In their own history, Connor did not lose his limbs. However, Burton died during that same war. And they don't know. They've somehow lost track of Flynn. So she's a little bit of a mystery as to what happened to her. She shows up on the historical record at one point and then just kind of disappears. So she is kind of in this gray area. And as I mentioned before, it's the offer that's being made here of sending her back and resetting things. It is interesting to imagine that maybe this conscience that has wormholed into this future could be sent back into via one of these links to an alternate history. Also, we discover here that for some reason, the jackpot happens much sooner, is much more accelerated in the timeline that this version of Flynn that we've been interacting with, this history that she's living in, which speaks to the fact that for some reason, this experiment has been made not to slow down the jackpot, but someone is doing an experiment to speed up the jackpot. To what end, we are still not certain. Meanwhile, Burton and Connor have made it to the eighth level or beyond the eighth level, the roof of this exercise tower, and they are thrilled. The most exhilarated time they've had in a very long time. When they get to the roof, turns out there's one surprise that Beatrice had promised, and that surprise is only one can be standing at the end of this exercise. Beatrice best both, both of them, breaking Burton's neck. Another expensive thing here to just off another peripheral. I assume this is an expensive and tedious task. But now all of a sudden, it seems to be an easy thing to do. <laughs> there was such an issue at the beginning about getting special permits for creating a peripheral, and they have to do this all in the dark, and now they're just printing out peripherals left and right. So doesn't really make sense what is actually, what the rules are of creating a peripheral and registering it or etc. That's the least of my issues at this point. And also breaks another peripheral by kicking Connor right off the roof. Connor, meanwhile, has fallen deeply in love with this robot woman, robot girl, I think he calls her. And we are uncertain as to whether Beatrice has been a real person or not up until this point. Even though her performance is so stilted, honestly, everybody in this future gives such stilted performances. I'm now starting to wonder if they're all robots, honestly, because we find out that Beatrice is a robot here. I'm kind of jumping ahead, so I'll save that reveal for a little bit later. Connor and Burton are thrown back into the past. This is when they find out, they get a text message saying that their mom is at the clinic. Also in 2032, simultaneously, Tommy has gotten first a call from the sheriff telling him that he needs to take time off and he really means it, then telling him, nope, I need you to come out to Corbell's compound. Something's happened. We know what it was in that he had found Corbell's wife dead 
I would have expected that Bob would kill her because it would seem just to be one more complication that he needed to deal with in having Corbell inevitably coming after him. But he did indeed kill Corbell's wife. By the time Tommy shows up at Corbell's house, Corbell has now returned as well and is fighting with the sheriff. So all of this, once again, such convoluted plotting. Tommy could have been investigating on his own, could have shown up at Corbell's house on his own. This whole conversation with the sheriff telling him that he's got to take time off and then hold on a second, come here. You got to help me with something. Hold on a second. I can't believe you're, you're here now. You have to forget everything you saw today. It's like everything on this show has to happen in four steps instead of one step. And I don't understand why. I don't understand what any of this helps serve. Now that Tommy is here, however, Sheriff Jackman tells him, you're going to help me cover this all up. And Tommy says, no, I will not. And the sheriff says, well, I'm going to say this killer got away because you weren't doing your job right. And you'll have your version of the truth and I will have my version. And people are going to want to hear my version and they're not going to want to hear yours. It's probably going to ruin your life. So you have no choice. Maybe there's even a little chance for you. Maybe you'll get a promotion at the end of all of it. And he tells Tommy, you're going to do what I tell you to do. And that includes you're going to go and arrest Burton and Flynn. They're drug dealers. This drug dealer rolled into town and now he's on a murder spree and it's all their fault. Tommy does head out, but we're pretty certain he's not going to comply. In 2099, Beatrice is giving Lobear her opinion of the fight, her experience of it, and says that Burton is the more efficient fighter, but also the more predictable one, and that Connor being more erratic might make him a better asset, and there's something else. And Lobear asks her, what's the other thing? She says, I'm not sure what it is. But I think we're meant to believe at this point that not only did Connor have some feelings for her, that maybe she had some instant attraction to him as well. But she's just a little robot. and She's never been in love. This is all new. This is all inferred, of course, on my part. Newland shows up at the inspector's office and wants to have a talk. Meanwhile, Tommy is literally beating himself up in the car, so angry that he's got himself in this impossible situation with the sheriff. And Bob is waiting at the clinic for Burton and Flynn to show up. Some interesting stuff happens here when we finally see Newland arrive and start her conversation with Lobear. She immediately calls out the fact that it's pretty commonplace to try to create an AI that has some resemblance to a former partner, former lover, husband, wife, etc. But not always a missing child. Aha. So now we see that Beatrice is some variation, AI version, of Lobear's own missing daughter. Interesting that this coid version of Daniel is there as well. So she has printed a variation of someone she knew. Beatrice seems to be much more high-tech. The inspector is not happy with this revelation, actually makes Beatrice power herself down and forget the last few seconds of conversation. We now are raising the specter of AI. What happens when AI gets to develop its own personality? And apparently this is what Beatrice has begun. She is, has some autonomy beyond what the usual programming for these coids appears to be. And I'm sorry, but opening this can of worms now, the personhood of these AI with one episode to go in this season, I mean, is this really, do we really want to breach this topic at all at this moment? <laughs> this show has exhausted me. <laughs> I'm so happy there's only one episode left. There is a lot of jibber jabber here. I don't understand all of it, or maybe I, I do, and it's just not worth exploring that much because I think things will be made very plain next episode. But I do want to call out, Newland does bring up something that I've speculated upon earlier in these recaps, and that is that maybe what she's trying to do is to save the future. She mentions that 
in all of our simulations and all the experiments they've run in the past, there's always this jackpot. There's always these failures because people refuse to work for a common good, to work harmoniously. And maybe there is some, finally, some social commentary here. So in her own mind, she may be an evil genius, but in her own mind, she actually does think she's trying to do something good if she can somehow save the future or save humanity from itself. But that includes manipulating people at their core to work for the greater good. The inspector does mention that there's always the risk, of course, that you can actually make people do the opposite as well. So two interesting points here. If you can make people do good, then you can also manipulate them to do bad. So that on its face is potentially a moral complication that is not addressed here. And also the idea of free will, that even if this somehow can save the future, if you're being manipulated by these haptics or by these implants, then what is the morality of that? Back at Lev's mansion, we see that he can also understand. He's been keeping this under his hat the whole time. He understands what Ash and Ozian are saying in their encoded language. Sends his cute little son off to get him his favorite knife to kill one of these two for betraying him. He doesn't actually do it because he kind of likes these scamps, even though they're working to undermine him right in his midst. He can't help but love these two, especially Ash, apparently. And he threatens them both to say, Ash, tell me what's happening here for real. Ash says, well, tells him the whole thing about the program being downloaded into Flynn's mind via that bacteria. And he's, she's trying to decode it to see what it actually hit, has in it. And he says, and what were you planning to do with it? And she first says, I was planning to sell it to the highest bidder. As a klept, he thinks that's what she should be doing, but he doesn't believe her. And then she finally admits that actually she would give it to the neo-primitives so that they could burn it all down, burn this whole future down, and maybe potentially give us in the past a chance, a fighting chance to what? Have the jackpot anyway? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows, right? I guess that remains to be seen. Not sure I buy her logic that the neoprims are the right agents to put her hope in, but Lev hears all this and he decides to not kill them because he loves them deep down inside. Even though he's a cold-hearted murderer, he still kind of loves them. And simultaneously, he says, I don't agree with your plan, but I do want you to keep doing what you're doing. So decode that algorithm and let's find out what's in there. He does also slash Ossian as a threat to say, and if you do this, any of this again, it'll be much worse next time. Back in 2032, Burton starts to get suspicious about being called out to the clinic. Good thing they have these haptics. They try to merge with Reese and they don't get any vital statistics. They suspect that he's dead, obviously. They use their infrared sites to look into the building and they can guess as to who is who. They're pretty sure they know who Bob is based on where everybody's sitting, but they decide to test it out and they're able to make Reese's body move with the assumption that it will make Bob jump again to check to see if he's still alive. Bob does indeed make his move and they shoot right through the building and probably kill him with the one shot right through his chest, but then they run in immediately afterwards and Burton puts a few more bullets into his head just to be sure that Bob is, is indeed dead. Okay, all of this is pretty cleverly executed, but this is another one, and maybe this just speaks to the fact that I'm already frustrated with the show, but what the hell is the point of putting this hit on them in the past, where supposedly you'd assume hundreds, if not thousands of people are trying to kill these people for a $10 million payout, and they all fail, even though it seems to be only one small batch of them. And then Bob comes, and we have this whole Bob character, we find out about his background, we find out about his daughter, he's given a full history, his 
involvement with the IRA, all of this. And then he kills Corbell's wife last week's episode to then unceremoniously be executed here. It makes no sense at all. Like, why did we spend so much time with this character for this? I cannot believe what this show has spent its time on when we still do not have even a bare understanding of what Alita's plan is, what the stakes are. If Flynn dies right now, does it change anything in the future at all? Does anything change at all? Is it just like to find out if Lev ends up with this technology or Newland gets it back? Is that the stakes of all this show? Like, And I am pretty certain, by the way, that that is not the stakes of this show. My point is that at this point, I do not know what the stakes of this show are. And it's crazy that we're at episode seven and this is where we're at. The cold-blooded murders aren't over yet, everybody. Tommy has now become a psychopath. (laughs) He does not go back and talk to the sheriff with a recording device. He does not come up with a plan to bring in Burton and Flynn and say, how do we turn the tables on these folks? He's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my evidence bag. I'm going to get my doodad. And I'm going to get Bob's gun, which I had in evidence. And I'm going to murder the sheriff. (laughs) Just unload on him. Don't get me wrong. This is satisfying, right? To see this scumbag sheriff, who really seems to be irredeemable at this point, get shot down. We didn't even know this. He was a bad guy until last episode. So the idea that Tommy would turn on this guy and become like a an assassin at this point, it's a pretty stunning turn of events. Like like I said, whether it's deserved or not, it makes me think that Tommy may be sociopathic deep down inside. He's out of bullets, but he's still able to use the doodad on Corbell, shoots him right through the glass window. And that's the end of the episode. In the previews for next week, we see that someone has survived in the house is it Corbell? Maybe the sonic gun wasn't enough to do him in. I've, I had to put money down. I think that's too simplistic at this point for the show to do that. I think it's more interesting to let the wife survive. And then the story she will tell, like how much did she hear if she was alive during that time? Will she cover for Tommy or not? But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised given the plotting on the show if it's just Corbell and then Corbell survives and says, I know, Tommy, now you're under my thumb. Ha ha ha. In season two, you got to do what I want you to do. I don't know. I honestly don't care. And if there is a season two, I'm not going to watch it just to put my cards on the table now. So if you don't want to hear me talk about negatively about this show, or if you want to tune in next week and see if, hey, maybe I'd come around on it. My apologies if this dampens your enthusiasm for the show. If you are still enthusiastic about the show, do email me, needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. And tell me what you're still appreciating about the show. I, like you can tell, I'm not interested anymore in what's happening on the show. There's maybe a movie version of this that would work well, that might be closer to what was in the novel. Uh, from the communication I've, I have had from some of you, it does seem like the plot of the novel is significantly different. Maybe I will read the, the novel now and uh, get some of, the, some of that satisfaction that I'm not getting from this show. And tell me what you're still interested in here. I feel like we've just introduced so many different things. They should have just stuck to one or two key ideas. And like I mentioned before, I mean, you have time travel here. You could literally set up a heist movie in time, have all of these different characters know exactly how this plot needs to execute. You could have a two or three episode finale where you see they're working to help out Alita, for example. Then Newland reveals that she's actually the one who is trying to save the future. Then their loyalties are divided in the past, maybe Bob or another assassin are closing in on them. We have multiple threads of suspense. Do we even end up rooting against like Flynn and Burton, who we've 
built this relationship with and we love them. And all of a sudden we're saying, no, if they succeed, then the future dies, like the jackpot happens, right? So it puts us at odds with ourselves. Like how do we resolve this tension where we want these people to survive, but then they can't actually solve their mission, the mission that we've been set up for the whole entire time. All of this could be really, really, really interesting, but I feel like they kind of set up some of these things and then they're like, oh, the AI has personhood as well. And oh, uh, now Newland has something to hold over the head of this detective who we just met an episode ago. And here's this Bob character, and he's maybe one of the most interesting characters in the show. And he's doing these things for the right reasons. He was trying to protect his daughter. He's trying to reform himself. And now he's dead. So it's like, okay, so what was all that about? And that's not the only thing. There's thus a hundred little minor characters that get developed and then dropped. You know, Jasper is going to spy on Burton and Flynn and feels guilty that he's in a way betraying his wife. Not going to pay off unless he just pops up and the last episode. And even if he does, even if that somehow pays off, how exactly is that going to deepen any of the themes of this show when he is barely a character here? And uh, what's happening with Corbell, right? Like Corbell knows everything now. So what are we afraid that Jasper is going to spy? He knows everything. Like, so, so what is Jasper's purpose at all? And why did we spend that time setting that up? Basically, when you have a show where you have that character's backstory. We literally see a, f- a flashback, a, an origin story for Jasper. And then we see Jasper having these con- conflicted feelings with his wife, etc. And it serves no dramatic purpose. Like, I don't understand what is... <laughs> I don't understand what's going on with the show. Like, I, anyway, but we have one episode yet to go. And I do hope that I'm not this negative at the end of the show, that maybe some of this stuff gets explained. I... I don't see how it can correct itself at this point. Do apologize if you, A, are enjoying this more than I am, and I'm I'm yucking on your yum. Alternately, I also am sorry if you are only watching this show because I recommended it because I was very curious about this at the beginning. I like science fiction. I like William Gibson, although I haven't read this book. And uh, yeah, I've been pretty disappointed with all of this. Okay, so with that disappointment out of the way, I do want to get into a conversation where I'm just doing a roundup of a bunch of things I've watched recently. And there's a lot of really good stuff out there to watch before the end of the month. So stick around for that conversation. All right, Celia. So we have not spoken in a few weeks, actually. I mean, we haven't recorded a few weeks. We have spoken in a few over the weeks, but there's a lot of stuff I've been watching that is not on the agenda in these other podcasts. And I think you've watched some of these things too. So I did want to put them all together, maybe just as a Thanksgiving streaming guide for people out there who have a little bit of time over the long weekend to maybe catch up on things. The first thing I wanted to recommend to you, actually, specifically, is that for everybody out there who has Amazon Prime, and I'm pretty sure that's all of our listeners, you can check out season one of Gangs of London for free on Amazon Prime only through the end of the month. So do try to catch it in the next week or so. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I did start watching this show. And the main reason I wanted to check this out was because this is actually created and most of these episodes directed by a director called Gareth Evans. And his action is absolutely bonkers. This is the guy who made the Raid movies, if you've ever seen those, with uh, their over-the-top fight sequences. Honestly, only the few episodes that I'm into this, there's been relatively few of these really well-coordinated fight sequences, although that's kind of a signature for this show. But I would say for anybody out there who likes, for example, Peaky Blinders, this is about gangs that are fighting in uh, London. It's a contemporary London, an interesting uh, um, combination of, of things. And season two has just begun on AMC. And anybody who's in the UK has already seen season two. Season two just wrapped up out there. And now it's streaming uh, on AMC here in the US. 
Uh, but you can see all of season one for free on Amazon Prime. So do check that out. It's only available through the end of the month. That's the first recommendation I'd make. And I think you would like this considering you like Peaky Blinders, for example, and also you like shows like- Banshee. Banshee, yes, <laughs> exactly. So, But this is an interesting setup. There's a couple of young guys who are trying to pull off a robbery with a low stakes uh, drug dealer and accidentally kill the head of this drug gang. So no one expected this to happen. They didn't know what they were doing. And of course, when this gang leader ends up dead, and this is at the very beginning of the first episode, so it's not a spoiler, uh, it basically starts this giant gang war uh, since nobody actually knows what's going on. And they're making a lot of assumptions. And this younger son suddenly is making very bad decisions. So it's very interesting. I've heard season two is not as good as season one, but season one got excellent reviews. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's uh, available for free. Excellent. I will. A couple of things I wanted to recommend to you specifically. I am catching up on some of these, you know, we're getting towards the end of the year and I'm catching up on some of these very well reviewed films. Uh, one I just watched just very recently, uh, just uh, yesterday actually, was Triangle of Sadness, which is the Palme d'Or winner this year. And in this movie, it's uh, if anybody knows anything about this, it's the movie where everybody on the boat starts vomiting at the same time. That's basically what it has going for it. It uh, won the Palme d'Or this year. Kind of controversial that it got a huge reaction from the audience there, like an eight-minute standing ovation. Uh, and then uh, once it's come out more broadly, the critics were kind of like, eh, on it. I found it very entertaining. This is from the same director who made Force Majeure. And as a matter of fact, he uh, has won the Grand uh, Palme d'Or previously as well with his last film called The Square, which is actually pretty good too, a satire on the art scene. This is his first English language film. These previous films were Dutch, I believe. It's a three-part movie. And in the first part, we kind of see the dynamic between these two models. And it's a satire of the fashion world. And then they end up, because they're influencers, on this boat with a bunch of really, really rich people. And then that becomes kind of like a metaphor for society, where you have this captain, played by Woody Harrelson, who's kind of a mess. You have these very, very rich people who are trying to tell everybody else what to do, even though they have no expertise on how to actually run a boat. And then you have a bunch of middle-class people who uh, are the service class, like the people who are actually waiting on them and bringing them their food and making sure that their or their needs are met. And then, of course, once everybody starts to puke all over the ship on a very, very bad stormy night, uh, you also see like the working class are suddenly, they're the ones that are doing all the grunt work and get none of the respect. And this basically becomes a metaphor for culture. And, and I knew about the whole <laughs> vomiting scene, which apparently got an uproarious reaction when it first played. But uh, something happens in the third part of this movie. There's a third part of this movie, which I was totally surprised by. So I will not spoil it here. But just to say that there is yet another setting for this uh, film once we get off the boat. And I thought it was pretty interesting. It's kind of on the nose. It's very preachy in a lot of ways about its points it's making, but it is a entertaining satire. But I just saw the movie The Menu, which is also another satire on rich people. And I personally, even though the audience and critical reaction has been very positive for that, I thought that was a little, a little less interesting to me as a, you know, as a satire. And the last thing I have a recommendation for you before we start talking about some of the things we've both seen, and this was the second place winner at Cannes this year and also recently available to rent at home. It's called Decision to Leave. And this is from Park Chan-wook, who directed Old Boy and The Handmaiden, which also won Best Director at Cannes the year that it came out. And I know you've just seen that recently. Yes. Uh, 
And Decision to Leave, I would say it's kind of a contemporary version of Vertigo. You have a cop who is brought in, a guy who's mountain climbing. He falls off this mountain and he apparently looks like an accident, but they start to investigate him. His wife is a Chinese immigrant. This is in Korea. And this cop just being thorough, uh, first of all, is obsessed with her instantly, but also starts to investigate whether this was actually an accident or not. And then uh, about halfway through, it starts to fold over itself and you start to find out a lot of things you thought you knew, you didn't really know. And this has another one of those classic haunting endings that he has in some of his films. This is not as disturbing as Old Boy, for example, but it does have a very haunted ending. And it's a very interesting film as well. I would say the most impressive thing about it, he is just so incredible as a director at this point. There is literally not a single, it makes you feel like every other director is just so lazy. Every single shot, even when people are just having a conversation, has layers going on in it. Just the placement of the camera and what is happening on the screen, it's telling you so many other things at the same time. And there's not a single wasted second of imagery in this film, which is just incredible to see someone. It's taken him five years now to make this movie after The Handmaiden, and he probably spent the whole time making this movie because it's so precise. It's really, really beautiful. And uh, The yeah. Handmaiden was amazing. Yes. I, I mean, already his films have, I think, become more and more bespoke over time, uh, you know, even more than old boy now that he has this status and he can have these budgets, larger budgets that even old boy, which is impeccable, but his films have become more and more and more precise. It, this makes The Handmaid look sloppy, <laughs> to put that in perspective, you know, uh, but not in a bad way, by the way. Sometimes you can be a little too, someone trying too hard, let's say, to make the film stand out visually. I didn't get that impression at all. It's just that, like I mentioned before, it's as if he's thinking about in this scene, given the conversation or whatever that's happening, he doesn't want to just put the camera there and let people talk. He wants the position of the camera, the shot itself to tell you something about what's happening. And uh, like I said, it just makes you think like, wow, every film should be this good, <laughs> made this precisely, let's say, right? So, so you feel transported. You do, but you also feel... The only downside potentially in this is, and some people might get this, although I think audiences in general have really liked this film, but I think that you could feel like it's a little too designed to like, it might make, maybe that makes it feel cold, I'd say, right? Uh, not for me, not for me. For me, I'm like, you know, I, I love every single shot. There's a scene where he's interrogating her inside the room and he stands up when he asks her a question and the way he puts his hand on his hip means that now he's blocked her out. Uh, in the camera, because we're watching this happening on the camera. And all we see is like a, a, a hole where his he placed his uh, hand on his hip. So you can see her eyes through the hole that he's created as he's asking her this question. And all we can see is her eyes and her response. And it's uh, it's it's just incredible that, you know, obviously nothing, none of this is by mistake. And it's, uh, it's just really impressive. Some people might feel that's a little too designed. For me, I just thought it was so lush. And so, like I said, you just feel like as soon as you finish watching it, you want to start watching it again just to appreciate how well made it is. That's how I felt about Smile. <laughs> well, yeah, to a lesser extent, I do, I do think serious. Smile is very well made. <laughs> we should talk about Smile for sure. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we could start the conversation there. I had seen Smile previously. You just saw it now because it's available on Paramount+. Plus. I uh, did recommend it on the podcast previously, but we should not spoil, by the way. I, I don't think we should spoil any of these things because they're easily viewable by everybody. So let's not yeah. spoil anything. But I would say that my only negative on Smile is that it reminds me in a very positive way of The Ring and also It Follows. And at the same time, it doesn't necessarily bring anything new to the table, but I will tell you as a huge fan of both The Ring and It Follows, I watched 
smile, enjoyed it thoroughly. And I was like, they should make more of these, like these type of movies, because <laughs> I find it very entertaining to put a mystery, like put a clock on the horror. I always like a I always like a mystery in all the films in general that I watch. I think I always prefer that. It just has one more thing to keep you um, engaged. But especially in horror movies, I think having a mystery at the center of it is always great. Having an investigation of some kind. And uh, yeah, and putting everybody on the clock. We all know what the stakes are, which makes it exciting. Right? I thought it was really, really well done. And by the way, I don't know if you were aware of this, but this was a movie that was supposed to go straight to streaming. They weren't even going to release it theatrically. And this movie's made like $220 million. It was a massive blockbuster, the most successful horror movie in years. So it's very funny to just think about. They're like, should we put this out to streaming only? <laughs> and then, of course, they would have missed a huge opportunity because the movie was a, a phenomenon, like one of those really rare blockbuster horror movies. And you wouldn't think that when you see it because the entire thing is based on dread. Yeah. So, yes, you do have the characters or the people that come out with a smile and they're very creepy and they're dangerous. Yeah. Oh, I disagree. But just, I would disagree slightly with that, by the way, only in the fact, as soon as I saw this movie, I was like, just like when I saw the ring, I'm like, this thing's going to be huge. <laughs> just on word of mouth, it's going to be huge. Uh, so I wasn't surprised by its success. I mean, I was surprised at how huge it was, to be honest, but, uh, but I was not surprised that it took off the way it did. What I mean is it's not technically what you would think first, second, or third a horror movie would be. It's um, not really about slashing and blood. There's not like an evil one person that's being stalked or, or a stalking creature. It's not a monsters or vampires. It's dread. I want to ask you what you loved so much about it because I know you really were a huge fan of it. But I, the only point I would make to all of that is that's part of the reason I kind of felt like it was going to be so huge is because like the slasher movies and such don't really become these massive hits. It's movies like The Ring, honestly, that become these blockbusters. And I think part of it, like you said, it's because it's not a vampire or a monster or is something that is more universal. And I think that's why it appeals to many different types of audiences. Some people get turned off by a slash or some people get turned off by some of these other genres. Uh, so that's why part of the reason I thought it was going to be so huge. And also because it reminded me so much of The Ring, which was, of course, a massive, massive success of like some 20 years ago at this point. I can't believe that movie is 20 years old already. Why did you love it so much? Dread is something that you don't know what's going to happen. So you're always on edge, constantly under stress. You're bugging. This girl was bugging. <laughs> and really good job with the bugging, by the way. And it escalated. She was speaking to people that had experienced what she was presently experiencing. And the reaction, like she might be contagious, was causing more dread. So the whole movie was like this. And then the apparitions are extremely creepy. Yeah. They turn something that would be normally a pleasant, maybe even innocuous reaction, but in a nice, warm way into like horror. That's where the horror is like a jump scare horror. Like these things are like created by your own mind, by the way. They are relating to you. <laughs> the whole thing is so eerie. You, sometimes you don't know until it's too late who you're speaking to. You can't trust yourself. Yeah. The whole concept is so, so like uh, nerve wracking. You can't sleep. You can't eat. I actually 
felt kind of scared and and very worried about her. Did you know, you by know? the way, that is Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon's daughter? No, I did not know that. But now I see it. You can see it, right? It's like a perfect yeah. mix of both of them. Yeah. I love Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Just a mid shout out. There's on Prime. I love Dick. <laughs> yes, I've heard of this. Yes. It's really good. So good, by the way. I, I've never seen that, but I have heard good things about it. That's my spiel on Kevin Bacon. <laughs> this is a, a debut film from this director. I thought it, it based on one of his short films. So his short film was very popular on YouTube. And that's part of what got him funding for this expansion of it into this movie. I do feel it does. You can see that it's a short film that's been stretched out. It didn't quite fill out its its running time. This is just me just being critical about it in general. A movie that I think was a lot of fun. And in general, I would recommend anybody who has even a passing interest in horror should see this. Uh, compliments, I'd say to it. I thought the ending's very good. So these films usually can't get a, a good ending. I thought the ending worked really well. It's really well made. Like the the jump scares are good. There's a lot of jump scares in this. Maybe that's, it actually made me laugh a little bit because there were so many jump scares, like not, positive, but regardless, they work and they're not cheap. It's not like just throwing a cat at the screen actually are real jump scares. And these actors, by the way, when they're scared. Oh, the, like yes. It's fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. They are re- they're, they're all good performers. Yeah. They, they, you can like when these people are at the end of their rope and you think uh, that they're, yeah, they, they are very stressed out. They, all good performances across the board. I agree, which I think is important in a horror movie. Also can have believe that these people are really afraid of dying because that's basically the stakes here. And uh, yeah, they set up a sequel uh, beautifully. Uh, I like the reveal of the monster at the end. Um, you know, uh, I won't go into details there, but I thought that was very well done. And, and this, the concept. Yeah. The, the concept, concept is yeah, that suicide's like contagious. Yeah. Yeah. But also that you could save yourself, but you have to do this other thing. It's the type of thing that kind of screws everyone over to save yourself the layers of the awfulness of that. Which once again is kind of a borrowed from the ring and also borrowed from it follows, right? That you can pass this on to somebody else as a way to avoid the worst consequences of it. Regardless, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying that that if you're going to borrow, <laughs> everything's borrowed in some way, right? <laughs> borrow from the best. And oh, and the other thing I was going to say that I think is interesting is that thematically it's interesting. She and these other people as well who are these victims have had suicide in their own past. So it's like a metaphor for you know, the fear that their parent or this familial suicide is coming to get them, like that some kind of mental illness is potentially coming. Uh, hered- and now they're borrowing that from hereditary potentially as well. But still, I don't care. <laughs> it's still, I think it's very effective, right? That you, in a way, can't trust your own mind. And you know, even when you're trying to explain people, no, this is actually happening, they might just think you're having some kind of breakdown. And of course, all of this, I think, works really well uh, in a horror movie, especially specifically because when you can't trust yourself or no one can, you know, you can't convince anybody that this is actually happening. I think those are all really interesting themes in horror movies. And I think all of that is the reason this thing's so popular. <laughs> so check it out, everybody. Check it out. <laughs> yeah, it was. I want to see it again. On to something completely and utterly different. Maybe we should talk about uh, the English and um, two, two, show, two things, two new properties that are out that basically talk about how terrible it is to live in the late 1800s. <laughs> one, yeah. is, one was The Wonder on Netflix, and the other was The English. 
Uh, it's funny that we were just talking about Don't Worry Darling in last week's episode of the podcast. And then we have Florence Pugh again, uh, giving a great performance, as she almost always does in this new movie available on Netflix called The Wonder. And this is not a spoiler, by the way, because it's also the framing device that is at the very beginning. Don't Worry Darling is an interesting film that has a terrible ending. And uh, even I would say that this movie, The Wonder, is very, very good. And it has this framing device. You know what I'm talking about? And the one's yes. not a spoiler because it's literally the opening scene and the closing scene of the movie. But I thought that that was a terrible idea. It really just only takes away from the film and it serves no purpose at all. So I don't know. I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. My first thought was, why are they doing this? Yeah. Why does this have to be here? This would be so much better if it was just this the thing story. we agreed to do, yeah. which is watch a film. That's <laughs> what I agreed to do. <laughs> right. Why are you guys messing with me with this fucking beginning? I didn't like that. So yeah, so this movie, The Wonder, is based on, on a novel written by Emma Donahoe, Donahoe, which she's most famously wrote the book Room. So a few years back, there was a Oscar-nominated film Room that Brie Larson won Best Actress that year about a woman who was abducted and held in a room, and then the kind of the consequences of that afterwards. An excellent film, by the way. And now this is uh, the same author who wrote that book, wrote this book called The Wonder, and it's been adapted into this film, which is going straight to Netflix after playing some film festivals. The, the story, by the way, is about a young girl in Ireland who stops eating, supposedly, and this nurse, played by Florence Pugh, goes to investigate and uh, basically, they keep a vigil on her 24 hours a day to see if this is actually a miracle. There's a doctor who kind of wants to see if there's some, maybe some scientific explanation for this. So everybody has their own agenda. And uh, we're trying to get to the bottom of it here in this mystery. And it's kind of a thriller in some ways. I actually did think it was pretty suspenseful at some moments. Uh, it is billed as a thriller, but I, I definitely think it's, um, you know, just the interpersonal mystery of it is a, a thriller in and of itself. And the performances are all excellent. But- but it opens with a soundstage and the camera pulls in on this stage in which Florence Pugh is like eating some soup. And it uh, has some narration too that basically says like, this is all artifice <laughs> for some reason. And then we go into this really detailed, beautiful, engrossing, captivating like these scenes. I was totally immersed in this late 1800s uh, time period that they've created. Uh, and then once again, they they remind us that we're just watching a movie. And I'm like, what, what is the purpose of this framing device, which I thought was so distracting. And I mean, I wish I could just trim those things off because I think aside from that, it's a very, very strong film. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I was relieved when I saw the beautiful scenery, when the movie actually did start, because- You thought it was going to be lots. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, no way. <laughs> this I'm not watching this like I didn't think it was going to be this movie so yeah then I forgot about it like right. you just said yeah you forget and all about it. got really into the movie because the movie's very layered also we always mm -hmm. talk about layers and yep. this has a lot of layers I mean yep. the reason mm -hmm. this family is in this situation yep. mm -hmm. is so intense yes and so unfortunate yep. there's just 
so many things wrong with this town. And, and everybody's these- agenda, including Flores Pugh's agenda, it's all really interesting. Yeah, fascinating. With this useless framing device, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with everything you just said. I was angry. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. What are you guys doing? What is this movie going to be like? Like, what am I about to watch? Like, I don't think I can do it. And then I forgot. Right. And then and- we're reminded. Yeah. The only reason I want to harp on it is because it is so distracting for no to no end. But I would just want to call out that it is literally moments at the beginning and moments at the end of the film. And like you mentioned, as turned off, I mean, literally turned off as I was with that opening shot where I'm like, why are you doing this instantly? I was then completely engrossed in the story. Like I, like you mentioned, I completely forgot about it. I mean, it was in the back of my mind, so I didn't forget about it. Moment to moment, I was completely caught up in the story of these women. I forgot about it. Yeah. And then, uh, and then they come back to it at the end. I'm like, and again, I'm like, why, (laughs) why did we do this? You know, I still want to recommend this very much because I think it's beautifully made directing. I think in general is so much about tone management. The reason that the middle is so compelling is because the tone management is impeccable by this uh, South American director, very talented director. He made a Gloria and Gloria Bell, uh, a few other films. He's actually had a couple of his films nominated for best foreign film already and beautiful directing work here. It also was what they said too. Right. This is a story. It's a story. Yeah, they're telling us it's a story. It's all they're yeah. all stories. Every story in the world, <laughs> even history itself, <laughs> has an agenda to it. So it's like I know <laughs> showing me this framing device does not make your movie better or smarter. It, it's just, I don't get it. We said the same type of thing for <laughs> Don't Worry, Darling. I'd say Don't Worry, Darling could have been a good movie, but is not because of that terrible ending. I'd say this is a very good movie. I I, I still say this is a very good movie, even with the stupid <laughs> framing device. It's still a very <laughs> good movie. So I mean, just unqualified. Yep. Speaking of the power of stories, and you know, let's talk about once again being in the late 1800s, and another film that is about the myth of the past, and that is what I think is once again a weirdly constructed story, but nonetheless something I would highly, highly recommend, and that is The English on Amazon Prime. The mood of that was amazing, and it would alternate. It was almost like watching an anthology. It, my criticism of that, it kind of, it's interesting that it kind of dovetails with my complaint about the wonder. I feel like every single episode, for some reason, put the characters in a different timeline or introduce us into a different, completely different set of characters in the same storyline. So we were completely discombobulated as the episode began. And then what I would say is by the time I got to the middle of each episode, I was so utterly engrossed. There was always like just two people sitting down, having a conversation. And I was just so in it, totally in it with these characters. And then the next episode would come and they would just do something else stylistically that would just throw me off again. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, just just stay in the groove, man. Like I'm, I'm there with you, man. I, lo- I loved so much of this show. It depends though, what kind of attention span you have. Right. Because if you have a very long attention span, it, and I'm not saying that you're smarter or not, it's just your attention span is of a different level. You're rolling more chill or something, man, whatever the reason. Then I am like that, by the way, I just kind of want to get in the groove, like as you're describing, and then kind of ride this wave as long as I can. And then I'm okay with switching to something else. But what if your attention span is shorter, then all the switch ups might be good. 
like you said, it, it does feel like an anthology in some ways. It, I honestly would feel like I think I'm watching a different story, you know, in the same universe, but a completely different story. But then in the middle of the episode, we would be right back into the groove with these main characters. I thought, and this is what made the, the, the show so compelling for me. I thought that Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt, also a producer on this show, but Emily Blunt and this um, actor, Chask Spencer, this Native American actor, just have incredible chemistry. So I think that when they were on screen together, the movie just clicks to another gear and it really made some of the rougher parts work for me better. And yeah, I mean, I think if they had simplified the story a little bit, it would have had more impact for me, not only in the case of this romance or would-be romance, but also uh, some of the points they're making about like, you know, this kind of hidden history of the West that I find really fascinating. You, you see everybody is kind of a victim of this mythology that they're buying into of the West. There's no really good guys or any bad guys that everybody's just kind of trying to make ends meet and they're all destroying each other's lives along the way. And it's a pretty fascinating perspective on dismantling some of this mythology of the West. And like I said, what drives it home for me is this really great emotional romance between these two main characters. Uh, you know, some of these stylistic things where they keep moving us back and forth in time, et cetera, didn't add anything to making the story more compelling. But still, overall, I think it's terrific. It was really good. And when you find out really what's happening, you get like a different perspective of her motives. I like that also. Even if that bothers you because it annoys me a little bit, I think it annoys you a lot more. <laughs> I still really liked it. And I yeah. had emotional reactions oh, I to the two characters. Yes, And too. that's a great thing. I, once again, am being overly critical here only because I feel like I loved so much of this show and just aspects of it took me out of it. And it's only because I loved so much of it that I'm critical of the other parts. But I would say in general, I think it's really Excellent. Definitely worth checking out. Like I mentioned, Emily Blunt gives a great performance. It's beautiful. I mean, just the scenery here is incredibly well designed. They must have spent a decent amount of money on this. It's uh, really well made. And and like I said, very interesting historically as well. And like, I know not to spoil anything once again, but this kind of reveal of this underlying mystery that's going on with these characters is not only a surprise in a positive way, as far as explaining a lot of what happens in the plot. It adds this whole other layer to the tragedy of it as well. Really good stuff. And I hope people do catch up on this. It's only six episodes. It's on Amazon Prime, available all to binge at once. It's a little dense, but it's really great. And I think the uh, the romance in and of itself will probably keep people uh, engaged. And then there's 1899. <laughs> <laughs> I did spoil and review uh, 1899 last week. So- Gosh. Uh, without spoiling it, I mean, if anyone wants spoilers for 1899, you can check out my spoiler review last week. What was your general opinion of that? Well, at first, I thought it was going to be something related to possibly a ghost story series. Yeah, a ghost ship. And I was fine with that. I was actually thinking, oh, that's really retro of them. I think that if they can pull off a ghost story on the water in 1899, that would be great. I would love to see that. And then I was so annoyed because none of this makes sense logistically again. Am I too logical? 
I don't want to bash on the show too much. I already bashed it in the uh, my review. Like, oh, but I wanted to recommend to you. Have you ever seen a movie called Triangle? I think so. I'd recommend this for everybody out there. It's only a movie. It's not a TV series. So I don't have to watch it for eight hours. <laughs> is it recent? It's 12 years old. It's available on Prime Video. It is called Triangle. It stars Melissa George and Liam Hemsworth, although he has a relatively small part in it at that point. And it's a British film, although not all the actors are British. And basically, it's about this woman who goes out on a boat trip. Once they're out at sea, at one point, someone starts attacking them on the ship. She survives the attack and ends up on another ship. That ship is basically stuck in the same time loop that they're stuck in, and it keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. And what I would say is it is way more interesting to me. I've seen it multiple times, way more interesting than 1899. So if you liked 1899, do check out this film. It's only about an hour and a half, maybe a little bit more. Uh, also a time loop with this female protagonist that's kind of trying to unravel what this mystery is. And I'd say that the payoff there is very potent. When you get to the end and you realize what's actually happening, it really uses this time loop metaphor really, really well. So check that out. Much better use of your time than 1899, which is not terrible, by the way. Not terrible. It looks great. I think it looks beautiful. But I mean, I feel like you go such a long way. It's so convoluted to get to where they get. I'm like, all right, well. <laughs> and by the way, not only do you get there, but- don't Worry Darling was just completely ripped apart for how illogical some of those things are. I feel there's way more plot holes in 1899. And that movie, that show's going to get a complete pass. It's getting very positive reviews from, I'm sure, some of the same exact people who hated Don't Worry Darling for some of the same reasons. And I'm like, a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense either, people, if you really dig into it. And maybe it'll be explained in season two, but I'm not interested enough, honestly, to check out season two. So I agree. We don't want to happen... What happened to Lost? I was <laughs> right. so into that show. I was so in love with that show. But now I might have to go back and actually finish watching Dark because everybody basically says this, that Dark, these are the same people who created the show Dark. I was never able to finish season one of that, but apparently everybody, can, it, that they completely stick the landing there. So maybe, maybe they have a two or three season arc for this show that would have a very satisfying ending. I didn't find the reveal at the end very satisfying, to be honest. So one last thing we could discuss is Atlanta wrapped up last week. What did you think of um, Atlanta? I like Atlanta. Yeah. I like that. It's so trippy. When Atlanta started, it was completely different in the way that it became at the end. Yeah. So it was more real, you know, they didn't have a lot of money at the time. They're hustling. They're living he's amongst to, yeah. the people. They're he's just people. trying to this become is, a rap star, right? He yeah. just like has a one like viral video and you see him like his ascent. So by the time we get to season four, he's, you know, you know, at the level of, he's not only at the level of being a very famous rapper who can headline a tour, he uh, is kind of over the hill already, right? He's like kind of been replaced by these younger rappers and he's kind of like an old school rapper at that point. And by that's kind of a, a commentary uh, by, um, Donald Glover, who is a rapper and an R&B singer himself. I, it never lost me. I think yeah. it's a brilliant show. I loved Atlanta. I liked the ending. Yeah. I don't know if I loved the ending. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like um, an ending of any kind. It just felt like another episode. Yeah, I agree. I always think like maybe they're going to want to add a few episodes later on in time and then it would be fine. I think, unfortunately, we're not going to see that because the reason it took so long to come back, not only was it COVID, 
but everybody is so busy. You know, Donald Glover is has his movie acting career. He has his musical career. And all these other stars on this show have all become huge stars, right? So season three, where they had those anthology episodes, by the way, people would get their own individual episodes, but they couldn't get everyone together at the same time. They were all making other stuff. They're like so busy, you know, making Marvel movies. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, Zazie Beetz was in like Deadpool 2, and she's probably going to be in the next Deadpool movie as well. So they're like, everybody is so busy, right? So I cannot imagine them getting this, these folks together, maybe for like a, a special, make a, an Atlanta movie later, but I can't imagine another season of the show ever. <laughs> it's just not going to be logistically possible. What's great, and I'm sure it's what annoys people because some people just didn't like the last few seasons, mm. is that no matter how far-fetched they're acting in their episode, it kind of will still tie in to them later. So in a way, it's explained. It's not just misplaced events that are yeah. occurring. They all tie in together. Even the anthologies. Yep where they're not right. tie into something in the neighborhood oh, yeah, in absolutely. some way. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I thought it was good. I thought it was very artsy and experimental. Yep. Yeah, I, I was a little less satisfied with season three, which had all those anthology episodes in there. Although I, I loved some of those anthology episodes. I just didn't know if I was getting what I wanted after them being gone for so long. I was much more satisfied with season four, which was more standard. But a couple of things, you know, I'm saying this as obviously I am not, uh, you know, African-American, so I don't have, can't speak to all the kind of racial dynamics, which are obviously a big part of the show. But I do want to talk about just some of the um, things that are revolutionary in Atlanta, even aside from that. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that this is a show that was from Black creatives. When that show started, I mean, we didn't even have the Jordan Peele movies yet. So it was not common at all to see black creatives making horror movies. I mean, season two of Atlanta is basically one horror movie after another, but basically saying, we're going to make a, a show that's not about social issues. It's not you know, a stereotypical uh, sitcom. And like I said, Jordan Peele kind of broke the mold with this as well, but it's like, we're going to make a show about whatever the hell we want to make it about. <laughs> like, good for you. And not only were they groundbreaking in the fact of letting black creatives like make shows like Insecure, shows like um, I May Destroy You, uh, other black creatives that come along and, and have done other types of shows. But just in general, like, you know, when Barry came around and having surreal elements in uh, this type of half hour show or even a one hour show was not common at all. So they kind of really set the mold for a lot of what we see in television now. They did a great job, as uneven as it is, I think an important show. I mean, I think you, it's definitely worth watching. And like you said, even season three with its weird anthology moments, they all tie thematically into those non-anthology episodes. And you literally can do like a dissertation on season three and how those anthology episodes mirror into those core cast episodes and why it's even called Atlanta when they're all in Europe. You know, the whole idea of going back home again to Atlanta and what that all means. And anyway, they obviously had a very ambitious agenda with this show. And it's not 100% successful, but man, they're trying to do stuff that no one else is even attempting. <laughs> so good for them. And it's funny. Yes. They do yes. really funny stuff. Oh my God. The last episode, as unsatisfying as part of it is. <laughs> I loved that show. It was really good. I just didn't know if I, I wanted the ending to be 
like uh, an ending. It looks like we know what's going to happen to them all. It looks like Vanessa is going to move to California. Right. With the little girl and that they'll always be friends and that, you know, maybe the rap career will slow down. And there was like foreshadowing to that with that very hilarious episode on the farm. That was funny. Yep, exactly. And their friend is just going to do what he does. You know, he just wants to experience the world and have new adventures. And he's just going to keep doing that, which maybe was pointed out also at the end to the point where he can't decipher reality from non-reality. Now that we talk about it, maybe it was a good ending. Yeah, I think that intellectually, and I think that's kind of my critique of the last season of the show, I think intellectually, when I think about the episodes after I watch them, actually, I could say the exact same thing about season three, too. It's like I would watch the episode, especially the anthology ones, I'd kind of feel unsatisfied. And then I would, I'd like break it down, like what was the point of that episode. And then when I got to the end of it, I'm like, wow, that was really smart. (laughs) I just feel like maybe in the moment, I didn't appreciate it the way I probably was supposed to. But I say all that, I have like basically watched this whole season just one time through. Maybe it's made to rewatch that season three, season four, go through it again. Like they spend time with those episodes because, and why not? Like that maybe, you know, if they, if they're trying to give us something extra to chew on, and this is the last we'll ever see of the show, it's not just going to be on for another 10 seasons. Well then maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Maybe we're supposed to rewatch the whole thing again and, and appreciate it more. And they make fun of themselves. They make yes. fun of like each other. Just in this episode, think about how hilarious some of those element those scenes were, but not only that, Think about Darius when he has these, you know, repeated waking up inside of that um, isolation chamber. And we don't even know if he's actually awake at the end there, or if he's still in another one of these meditative moments. But when he goes to visit his dead brother, that scene was so potent, right? And we like never have him, you know, we never see this backstory he has with his brother there. You know, that whole scene is just so beautiful. And you're like, wow, I just did not expect that either. And that's, I think that's kind of what the show always does. It kind of surprises you when you, uh, you know, it zigs when you expected the zag. And I guess it's always been that way from the beginning. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to miss it. (laughs) I loved it. Can we watch it though? Can we watch? I think we have to rewatch it. Do you have a favorite episode overall or a favorite episode of season um, four? I have so many favorite episodes, but some of them I found like extra trippy, which made me think harder. There is this one episode. I don't even think it's the best one but it's very entertaining when, when she thinks she's French, she really believes this. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I also think she, she might've thought Amelie. she was, <laughs> yes, she thinks she's Amelie, but also like La Femme Nikita. And she's serving people's <laughs> she's ha- like, <laughs> hands. She's serving human hands to, the, to these rich people. Yeah, she's <laughs> like a spy and Amelie and she has an accent And her friends are there to witness this entire thing, (laughs) her best friend. And then these other two tagalongs who just think she's cool. Right. But for a while, I'm like, is she like faking this? Then you realize, you know, at the end what's going on. And it's so heartbreaking. Yep. Yep. That I think it's the finale of the third season. And that is kind of the heart of that third season as well, where, She's running away from Atlanta, right? So we have these friends of hers from Atlanta visiting her. She's putting on this other persona, you know, her daughter's back home. And all of this is just her 
running away from inevitably going back home, which by the way, in the very first episode, we see this white guy in the boat talking about this idea of going home and uh, his name ends up being Earl, right? And then we see Earl waking up at the end of that episode, right? So this is all happening. Those anthology episodes are like in a way happening inside of Earl's head. And uh, once again, this whole first season is about them avoiding Atlanta and being in this very strange, very white European world, but still always having to go back home to Atlanta in the end. And that's kind of what happens. So anyway, it's really impressively well-designed, but you know, maybe it left me a little cold sometimes. But like I said, you rewatch those episodes and you realize how incredible at a level that most people don't even bother attempting. So they're not going to hit a home run every time, but Hey, at least they're, they're trying for me. My favorite is still Teddy Perkins. It's that season two episode, you know, that won all the Emmy awards where Darius goes to pick up the piano at that guy. Who's like, kind of like a, an analog for Michael good. Jackson. Yes. That was so good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's incredible. That's another one of my favorites. What did you like the most about that? It was funny. Also, oh. the creepy little guy yes. was mm-hmm. like bugging me out. I'm like, I'm so <laughs> like nervous. Yeah. First of all, the epitome of season two, season two, every single episode is basically a horror story. You know, Darius, it's like a Darius bottle episode. He shows up at this place. There's this weird guy there. Turns out that he thinks that there's another, he's pretending to be this other guy. Turns out it is actually another guy who's trying to kill the original Teddy Perkins. But I found <laughs> it so fascinating because just the tone of it is so strange. It's so funny. It's so creepy. But not only that, I think it's very deep. It is about people like Michael Jackson spent their careers trying to appeal to a mass audience and how it completely deformed them into, uh, mentally. And uh, that is you know, is something that's overtly addressed inside the show too. So the fact that it could do all of that is just incredible. It's just incredible. I think it's always trying to be that. I just don't know if it ex- executes at that level. But hey, anybody who ever is going to talk about TV shows in the future, that's going to be one of those episodes you have to see. I mean, I can't expect the whole season, the whole show to be at that level. But season two, I'd say across the board, every single episode of season two, you can read each one of those episodes as basically an anthology, all these different types of horror. <laughs> you know, you have the Woods episode, which is incredible. A paper boy gets lost in the woods. He runs into those fans and the fans get aggressive. And then they try to like shoot him because, you know, that whole thing escalates. And then he gets lost in the woods. And then he's confronted by the death of his mother and everything. So it's so scary. And it goes, it's like three different genres at the same time. And then, of course, it uh, also has this really emotional payoff where he finally deals with the death of his mother. And that's another incredible episode, too. So season two for me is just amazing. I think you should watch the whole thing because the evolution of yeah. these characters over time and the relationship they have with each other, how that evolves yeah. over time is fascinating to watch. It's like a slow burn. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, yeah, I think it's important that you, that especially in season four, that as unsatisfying as some of that might be, but that it tries to give everybody a trajectory. And like you said, we kind of know they're all going to be okay, come out of this period in their lives. They've all reached some kind of level of success. I mean, I love these characters, so I'm glad that they're all kind of successful and and, and content at the end. I agree. Yep. And uh, maybe we'll rewatch all of Atlanta sometime <laughs> and then go through it one episode at a time. <laughs> yes. Maybe I should rewatch the whole show. Yeah, I, think I think you should start from the beginning because of you know, when you start off, it's like not even remotely oh, it got what so much you end up yes. with on season four. They kept upping their game every season. Yeah, yes. Sure. Yeah. So I would like to start rewatching it from the beginning 
and then point out how layered the entire thing is. Yep. Yep. Talk to you soon. Bye.